Welcome back to QAV, episode 539, recorded Tuesday the 4th of October, 10.51pm Brisbane time, which would make it 2.51pm time in uh, the uh, other states that now have daylight savings like Sydney. Hello, Tony. Hello. Yes, we we have daylight saving. Spring forward, so we lost an hour of, of sleep on Sunday night or Saturday night. How are you coping with that? Are you all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not too hard. We had a public holiday on Monday to recover. <laughs> so did we. The Queen's birthday. Well, is she dead? Why are we still celebrating her birthday? Is it, I'm not, I don't even know what it's for. Is it Queen's birthday here or is it Labor Day? I'm not sure. No, I think it was a Queensland thing. Oh, okay. <sighs> I know. Those. How can you be celebrating the Queen's birthday? <laughs> like if we have it again next year, I'm, <laughs> I'll get very upset. <laughs> not that it matters. <laughs> it was, I still work yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, you know who's not having a holiday? Liz Truss. Tony, Liz Truss. <laughs> Non-stop. Just genius. What does David Letterman used to say? There's no off. Genius has no off switch. That's Liz Truss's motto. It's the new <laughs> Prime Minister of the UK. <laughs> I, I think there are probably people in the Conservative Party trying to find their off switch at the moment. <laughs> She's not having a good start. So she was going to uh, do some big tax cuts. Thought that was a great idea. The market said, no, we don't like that. And now she's uh, reversed her position on the tax cut. Spinning the job for, what, two weeks? Yeah. And she's already had to reverse her first major policy decision. <laughs> so as you said off air, like uh, who would have thought any they could get someone in the job that would make Boris Johnson look good? <laughs> I know. Like I reckon next week she'll be in a harness being ziplined through, <laughs> through London waving two British flags. <laughs> like Boris did. She, she's opened the bottom drawer and found the envelopes already. <laughs> the three envelope yeah. strategy. She's come out she's come out all guns blazing. <laughs> but pointing at both feet. It's just, yeah. It's not a good start. <laughs> no, indeed. But uh at least when I looked last looked, the market was having a better day today as a result yeah. of her uh, reversals reverse decision. Yeah. I mean it's interesting, isn't it? The um I was going to talk about it a bit later, but I can re- I'll raise it now. I mean, the interest rates are rising. We've had a lot of money, free money, sloshing around the system for many years, since the GFC, in fact. And uh, interest rates haven't risen much. And we're starting to see the, the chooks come home to roost, or as Buffett says, when the tide goes out, see you swimming naked. But it didn't take much to just about melt the UK bond market, the gilts, as they call it. They had the gilt saw right last week. Yeah. Gilt saw over all the leverage and the hedging they were doing, which they shouldn't have been doing or should have been doing in a much tamer manner. Long story short, there's a lot of people taking extra risks and using leverage because interest rates have been low and bond yields have been returning not much until recently. And it's come home to bite them now. Interest rates are rising. And then something comes out of the blue like it always does, the, this proverbial black swan. And... uh Suddenly, we see there's problems in the bond market in the UK, and and the government has to raise all the money to do what Liz Truss wanted to do, which which is meant uh, you know that that spooked the bond market as well. And then we find out that there were all these pension funds that uh, are still defined benefit, which is I guess different to most Australian pension funds. There's probably a few defined benefit funds left in in people who've been employed for a long time, maybe in big companies, maybe even in the public service. I'm not sure. But uh, in Australia, they're a rare breed. But I know in Canada, they, they were still being used a lot. And it sounds like the UK. And 
they were kind of operating on very fine margins, but it seems like a bit of excessive leverage and risk. And and that's what's caused the bond market to melt in the UK is uh, as soon as there was a, a bond sell-off, that, that threw all the hedging out. And it just reminds me, we've seen two big, I mean, we've seen lots of downturns in the share market during my investment lifetime, but two big ones, the the 87 crash, which was, uh, well, I guess before I was investing, but I was certainly in the labor market then in the workforce. The 87 crash when, you know, it was generally because of hedging and long-term capital management comes to mind as the sort of poster child that went broke and sent markets into a tailspin. And they were taking too much risk and they was meant to all be balanced by mathematics and it wasn't, of course. And as soon as a black swan event came along, it threw all all their maths out the window and they nearly went and they did go broke and people who had uh, lent them money were, were teetering on the edge as well and had to get bailed out. So to hear that the British pension funds are doing that again with hedging and those kinds of instruments is a worry. And then to hear that they were also, or some players in the UK market were also using collateralized debt obligations, CDOs, which was the one of the causes of the problems with the GFC. It's just amazing how, A, nothing ever changes. <laughs> this time it isn't different. And B, how these things creep back into markets after a few, you know, relatively calm years or up years and, and people start taking risk again. And I guess they're forced into it. If you're a defined benefits pension fund, you have to have some kind of uh, back-to-back safe investment. And unfortunately, that wasn't paying enough to, to cover the payouts to people. So they started trying to eke out... Uh, better returns. And and the only way to do that is to increase your risk. And as the tide goes out now, suddenly we see that they're swimming naked. So that's reverberated around the world. And then uh, when they reverse their tax cuts, that's kind of stabilised Wall Street. So uh, I think what, uh, to be honest, I think what the bond traders on Wall Street are are thinking to themselves is, hmm, if (laughs) in the UK, the the government uh, has crashed the market and the Bank of England has been forced into quantitative easing again, which is bond buying, which is uh, forcing up the price of bonds. What can we do in Wall Street now to force the Fed to do a U-turn and start buying again? So I, I wouldn't be surprised if the ultra-smart people in who are trade bonds in Wall Street come up with something as well to curtail the interest rate rises, but I don't know what that will be. But someone smart will, will think of something. But, yeah, it's just... Uh, it's just amazing. And of course, uh, it's the bond market which can drive the share market because uh, it drives interest rates, which drives the share market. So uh, yeah, it's interesting to watch it just where the levers are being pulled and what moves the markets. But yeah, just a complete mess in the UK at the moment. And just cameras in the side, speaking of interest rates, I've just seen the Reserve Bank has lifted the cash rate by 0.25, a percentage point today. We're recording this at nearly three o'clock Sydney time which is interesting too, because everyone predicted 0.5. So that might spur a bit of a a rally tomorrow in the share market. So we're going to have to change the interest rate in our spreadsheet again? We will. Yep. We'll change it for our IV calculations by adding 0.25 to it. And then we'll need to change it in the bank mortgage rates as they start to rise. Sometimes they lag by a week or so, but they'll start to rise soon as well. That's our test for dividend yield. So interest rates continue to go up. Uh, the market is still up today, about an hour left. Uh, it's up 3.26% today, the All Ordinaries. That's a huge increase, isn't it? Three Over more than 3%. It is huge. In one yeah. day. That's yeah. one of the biggest rises uh, I've seen for a long time. 
Yeah, well, Dow Jones was up 2.6%. So, uh, you know, we're kind of a little bit, uh, even a little bit better than that. NASDAQ was up 2.91% last night. So, yes, a rare good day, but it hasn't been a good week overall for the market. It's been doom and gloom uh, yet again in the last week, and that has affected our portfolio, of course. But before we get into that, we'll do portfolio updates. Let's talk about coal, Tony, because when we're looking at our commodity checks at the beginning of each week, we decided this week that thermal coal is still a buy. It's roaring upwards still. But coking coal or metallurgical coal is actually a Josephine. Mm-hmm. And then I screwed up and went and bought SMR for our portfolios today, which is actually coking coal. Not After selling it last week, I bought it again, and I shouldn't have, because I'm, but I'm an idiot. But when, I wanted to ask you about companies like Yankol, Y-A-L. When we're in a situation where thermals are by, coking's a Josephine, or let's say it was a sell, either way, and we're looking at a coal stock like a YAL, and I added some YAL to one of our portfolios uh, on Friday, I think. How do we, like, do we have to get down into the nitty gritties and figure out for each coal company what percentage of their coal is thermal, what percentage is coking, and yep. do all the, oh, really? Yeah, that's what we had to do. I remember last year when we were looking at iron ore companies because they, were, they weren't just single metal companies. There was, a, you know, BHP and Rio don't just mine iron ore. They... They sell copper occasionally and gold and other things as well. So we had to check that iron ore was the predominant metal. And there were other smaller miners, particularly in the copper sector, which are often copper and gold. And we had cases where the copper price was going up and the gold price was going down or vice versa. So we had to check. Sometimes it's not always consistent, but Stock Doctor will sometimes on the front page tell you the breakdown of sales by uh, type. It didn't doesn't in Yankel's, Yankel's case. So I had to go back to the um, latest results announcement and scroll down to it told me how much the sales were by type. And in Yankol's case, it was 3.9 billion of thermal coal sales last year and 0.95 billion of coking. So it's it's predominantly a thermal coal company. So in that case, we would say, okay, we will rely on the status of the thermal coal commodity price Correct. and discount or ignore the coking coal, whereas with SMR, it's mostly metallurgical coal, as I understand it. Correct, yeah. Okay. And I guess just to add to it, like, um, you know, I make mistakes. You've just made one, but it happens with investors everywhere. And you just got to decide whether you want to sell it now and reverse it. But I prefer to hold on to it and then just use our normal three-point trend lines and rule one alerts to, uh, to st- or stop losses to sell out. Well, it's up. SMR's up 6% since I bought it this morning. So really I'm a genius is what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, give us all a favour. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going, you know, I'm the, I'm the quaverick of the week yeah. trying to prove that our rules are bullshit. Fitting the rules. <laughs> well, it's, 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 I mean, the other thing, the interesting thing about mistakes is we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for mistakes. I mean, it was always a key point until I picked you up saying, and Richard. You're saying you were a mistake, Tony? Is that oh, what you're saying? very my, definitely. My mother always tells me I'm a mistake. Yeah, yeah very, very definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Although I had a loving household, I was definitely a mistake. No, well, if you re- if you look at if you do any reading into evolution, and uh, I love Richard <laughs> Dawkins' books, evolution only works because there's a five percent copying error in the DNA when it when it merges. If you didn't have that, the gene pool would be so you know, repetitive and small. We'd all look like the British royal family for a start. But um, <laughs> you, you need those errors in the <laughs> in the 
in the gene pool to allow diversity to eventually creep in. And at, for some reason, at the, I guess because of evolution, at exactly the right rate to allow us to survive. And it's so that's why I don't think it's a it's a problem if we make a mistake. It's only one stock in a fifteen to twenty stock portfolio, and we know how to deal with stocks that you know go south. So I'm not too worried about it. Unfortunately, I told all of our subscribers that I bought SMR, so they pushed the price up. Now I can get out. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. Gordon Gecko, I've got Gordon Gecko on the other end of the line here, folks. <laughs> Hair slicked back, pinstripe suit, money never sleep. Because greed, my friends, <laughs> is good. Greed is right. Greed clarifies. Greed rises up. <laughs> What was the famous line from uh, Wall Street? Go to the phone, dial this number, and say, "Blue Heron says Anacott Steel." Something like that was the was the code. Something <laughs> like that. Yeah, good film. I love that film. Yeah. Speaking of uh, well, Gordon Geckos, Mark sent me an email yesterday to let me know that David Gottsman, one of Warren Buffett's partners, Charlie Munger's partners, passed away um, the other day. 96 years old, he founded the investment house First Manhattan and after befriending him in the 1960s, pursued enormously lucrative deals with Mr. Buffett, according to the New York Times. Do you know about this guy, Tony? I don't, know. New York Times says, David S. Gottesman, a protege of Warren Buffett who built a powerful Wall Street investment house, First Manhattan, and presided over it for half a century, died on Wednesday at his home in Rye, New York. He was 96. Though Mr. Gottesman credited Mr. Buffett with making him a Wall Street billionaire, he could have scarcely been more different from that world-famous investor. Mr. Gottesman did not appear on television, kept his political opinions to himself, and presided over his privately held first Manhattan company with no advertising, no commentary, and no touting of favourite stocks. The company manages more than $20 billion for its clients, mostly individuals. The only time a whale gets harpooned is when he surfaces, Mr. Gottesman said in an interview (laughs) for this obituary at his firm's Park Avenue office in 2013. So nine years ago, they they, they interviewed him for his obit one day. (laughs) After he spent a decade or so drumming up merger and acquisition business for Hal Garten and Company, an old line Wall Street house, A friend at another firm suggested in 1963 that Mr. Gottesman meet Mr. Buffett since they had a similar approach to investing. I was buying value stocks, he was buying value stocks, Mr. Gottesman said, referring to the purchase of shares in companies with substantial assets selling at big discounts. The two hit it off over a Wall Street club lunch and a subsequent golf game launching a close close business and personal association that lasted for decades. Warren was smarter and knew more than anyone I'd ever met in the investment business, Mr. Gottesman wrote in reminiscences circulated within his family. I vowed to stay close to him from then on. The two men began telephone conversations every Sunday evening in which they discussed investment ideas. Mr. Buffett, not yet in the public eye, provided so many profitable suggestions that Mr. Gottesman, by his account, found it hard to sleep afterwards. Anyway, he ended up... um, Starting first Manhattan in 1964, invested a bunch of money in Berkshire Hathaway, was a board member, I think merged his firm with Berkshire Hathaway at some point. Anyway, yes, stayed uh, close to Buffett for the rest of his life and uh, did very well out of it. There you go. Well, thanks for that. That's interesting. Another value investor, another value investing billionaire. 
and living until his uh, mid-90s. So uh, thanks for pointing us that out to us, Mark. It'd be interesting to know what, what the common denominator is between the lifestyles of all these nonagenarian value investors. Well, they're billionaires for a start. Yeah, so good healthcare. Lots of seized candy, I think, is the other thing. <laughs> to say that. Seized candy is the secret. <laughs> I, can, I can do that. Yeah, you've got to be a billionaire for it. It only works. Ah, The magical powers of Z's candy only work if you're a billionaire, I think. So, you know, another few years to go. And I was also born in 1963. So, oh, yeah, there you go. Magical year for value investors. You were destined to be a value investor. (laughs) Portfolio, just quickly, I had a look at it this morning. Uh, Since inception, I think we're up about 14% versus the per, per annum, that is, CAGA per annum, versus the ASX 200, which is about a third of that. So or the, the SPDR 200, the sexy 200 is about a third of that. So, yeah, that's the portfolio update, about three times the index over the uh, last three years on average. Yeah, I just wanted to add something to that because we talked last week about uh, why at least for the short term, we were underperforming the index. And I did notice that the small lords for, on a one-year basis anyway was is down 22.2%. So I'm not saying we shouldn't benchmark against the all lords like we do, but a large part of our dummy portfolio is actually small cap companies. So, you know, we're actually outperforming small lords, but on the short term anyway, you know, underperforming the all lords. Yeah, good point. That can be the reason. What have you got on your list of things to talk about today, TK? Oh, we've covered some of them. I just wanted to do a couple of implications on where I think we are in terms of the market. What we've been seeing recently is the price part of the price earnings ratio contracting. So stocks have been still reporting decent earnings, but the price of the stock has been coming down, which means that the PE has been contracting. And we can see that in the market overall. It's back towards uh, average sort of market ratings for PEs. But we haven't seen the E dropping yet. So that's the thing we've got to watch for the next little while. If we do go into a recession or a, a negative environment economically, we will see earnings start to decline and that will be another leg down in the share market, which is uh, not pretty and we don't know we'll get it, but it's something that we need to be aware of. And if continuance guidance works and it does mainly, we should start to see companies call out during confession season that they're having uh, Earnings downgrades, which will be an issue for us, doesn't change what Sorry, we do. What was what? What's that? Continuance guidance. Continual guidance. It's a policy of the ASX. Um, okay. Well, you don't have to laugh. Just continue. What's that? It's like confession season. Is that what you're talking about? You're supposed to. They're supposed to. Yeah. So continual guidance is a policy of the ASX. So every time the company has material information about its performance, it has to disclose it, which normally means they do it around. Confession season because they're pulling all the numbers together and and working out the P and Ls before announcing the whole thing and gets and after you know awaiting audit before announcement. But uh, if they know even a quarter way through the year, in fact, AGM season which we're going into now can often also be a a time when we get confessions because the company knows already that they're having a tough time. Didn't seem to work very well in the lead up to the last reporting season, because I I was surprised on a handful of occasions in the last reporting season. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the, I mean, the ASX does monitor this, but you don't hear much of prosecutions about, you know, for people who don't do this properly. But yeah, a few line ball cases there, I agree. Right. 
Okay. So that's one thing to be aware of. The other musing I've had about the current market is people do lose sight of the fact that we are focused on inflation, but inflation is a rate of change indicator. So it's a price or the cost of buying a market of goods, which has been standardized by the RBA, compared to the price of doing it last quarter and this time last year. So right, if the basket of goods last year cost 100 bucks to buy food, groceries, pay electricity bill, your rent, whatever, and it costs $110 the same period this year, then inflation's running at 10%. If it costs $110 again next year, inflation's zero, but the but you've still got to bear the cost increase from two years ago, right? So it's entirely possible that the RBA can get to a stage where they say, well, we brought inflation down to our 2% range, but the economy's still in bad shape. So Again, it gets back to this, is that the way the RBA should be working? And they've only got one lever and they've got one set of guidelines, but should they have some power to finesse? Because, yeah, I mean, all this inflation could be baked in for a long time and raising interest rates won't help it. And inflation might be gone in three to six months, but all the costs, we still could be paying above, we probably will be paying above $2 a litre for petrol and paying a lot lot more for our electricity and gas and a lot more for our mortgages thanks to the RBA. But if inflation is at 2%, the RBA will just, you know, rub its hands and go, job done. And it's not. So that's something else to be aware of, I think. And hopefully all these things are being taken into account with the review of the RBA that's going on. What else do I talk about? I've got to say, it's I'm increasingly pessimistic about our chances of, of avoiding recession. And I've always had a heuristic that, the basic model for a household economy is based on petrol prices, interest rates, and the dollar. And we've now had all the legs of that stool kicked out. Interest rates are rising, petrol prices are high, and now interest rates are uh, sorry, now the dollar's dropping. So, which means dollar dropping is a good thing in some respects because we're an ex- exporter of resources, and we'll start to see. And I'm already hearing stories about people um, leaving the cities and going to work for the mines, and I've seen that before. And you know, unemployment r- remains quite low, which is good. But for a lot of people who, um, you know, running a household when you're buying clothes, white goods, black goods, and they're all imported because we don't have much of a manufacturing base here, it's bad because uh, we're paying more for it now. We pay more for an overseas holiday, all those kinds of things. So basically, every cost on a household is going up at the moment. And that's got to be recessionary at some stage. When you say interest rates are high, though, his, you know, according to historical measures, they're not really high. They're still quite low, but they're higher than they were higher. years ago. Yeah, Correct. So is that when you're looking at your three legs of your, no doubt, very expensive handcrafted stool <laughs> that you bought in some, like, boutique <laughs> furniture salon somewhere in High Street... <laughs> Is it high interest rates or just rising interest rates that's that leg? It's the rising interest rates. Okay. Yeah, so you're right. They're not high compared to what they were, but but as you know, people will know, household debt is much higher than what it was. And in fact, I don't actually mind interest rates going up as long as it's done in a stepped measure, measure in a considered way because I think we do have too much debt around the world at the moment. You know, when interest rates are zero, everyone's just geared up. And that's a, a bubble in the debt markets, which has to come home to roost. And we're seeing it done play out in the UK when, when a black swan comes along and, and things expose all the risk that people were taking when they shouldn't have been. And we're seeing it in the property market here as interest rates rise. We'll see it probably worse over the next 
12 months when all the people who took out fixed interest rates when they were 2% for two or three years have to rotate to interest rates, which are now more than twice that. So their mortgage doubles. And even though 5% isn't high, historically, it's still a big cost increase. And so if you're if you're running a household, an average household, I mean, it doesn't affect me. Like my my three-legged stool's 10 feet high, right? You can look a bit off it and it doesn't, doesn't change what I do. I'm lucky, but I'm the exception. But if you're out in Parramatta or Penrith in Sydney or, you know, wherever, and you're trying to make ends meet on an average salary, you're now paying more to drive your car and you have to drive it because public transport isn't great out there. You're now paying you know, potentially up to twice for your mortgage and 30% higher for your electricity and gas bills. You don't have much left over. And it's the, it's usually the discretionary spending which drives the economy. It's eating out, it's going to events, it's uh, taking holidays, which keeps the economy moving. When those things all dry up, it's it's recessionary. And uh, before people complain and, and, you know, they try and cancel us, I just want to point out that when Tony talks about the black swan in the UK, he's not referring to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Quasi Kwarteng, when he says that. Very much so. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. That's not what you're referring no, to. That's you at just want to point out you weren't there. I didn't. I know. I'm just getting ahead I was of thinking, it. Liz, Liz Truss, she's not black. Right. I, wasn't thinking, I wasn't thinking about the colour of anyone, actually. It's, uh, in, in, yeah, in England, all the swans are white. And then the black swan is an unusual event. It's just the same. I know that. <laughs> and you know that. Good. But, you know, you've got you to gotta be careful these days. You know, you don't want to end up like Louis C.K. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you do. I don't know. What, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, anywho. Moving on from there. Uh, what else do I want to talk about? No, I think I've done everything now, just the pulled pork. All right. Pull that pork, Tony. <laughs> uh, yesterday was a public holiday. We probably haven't switched back into business mode yet, have we? Hey, we, you and I worked very hard over the course of our lives to make sure, you, you more than me, to make sure we never have to be in business mode ever again. Yeah, uh, that's why I've got the long hair. That's one of the reasons. <laughs> okay, so BFG is my pulled pork this week, Bella Financial Group. And the way, the reason I did that was it's, uh, we haven't talked about it for a while, or we haven't talked about it at all, I don't think. Uh, it's very high up on our buy list. It's number seven on our buy list at the moment. And it was, uh, I think, just, it's probably no longer Josephine. It was just on the cusp when I did the analysis yesterday. But anyway, have a look at it, people. Do your own research because I've done numbers when the share price on the weekend was, for some reason, 95 cents when it downloaded in Stock Doctor. But on the day when I had a look, it's back up to a dollar. So that's a big swing. But anyway, it doesn't make much difference to the numbers, but you might want to check it out based on your own numbers. First of all, ADT for this stock is $84,000. So it's not going to suit everyone, but it's a reasonable size for some people. And couple of things to point out. It's, well, first of all, it's a stockbroker. So not a great time to be a stockbroker at the moment with the, <laughs> the market's down, but that's not a bad time to buy one when the price is down. So there's swings and roundabouts with this. Bell Direct Group is a full service broker. It's also an online broker. It also uh, offers margin lending products to people, provides stock market research and retail and wholesale broking. It's been around for a long time. It's offering a full suite of stockbroking services, a well-established business. Uh, it's The share price is down 50% from its highs last year. So it has it has come off a lot. 
And I'll go through the risks at the end. There's a couple of reasons for that. But anyway, uh, I'll go through the numbers first. A couple of things strike me straight away off the bat. The yield is nearly 9% on this. It's 8.9%. So that's very high. And uh, the ownership of or the, the CEO, which is the is called the MD and executive chairman in this case, holds 40% of the, of the market cap. So huge shareholding for uh, the principal. And he's been employed by the brokerage since 1983. So it, I think this company goes back a long way and was founded by a person called Bell. So this person isn't Bell, but he's been around for a long time and he holds 40% of the company. So he's probably running it to suit the long-term benefits of uh, of the company and the shareholders. But he must be getting along in his career. And so succession planning would be an issue as I had a quick look at the board and nobody else holds anywhere near the, the stock holding he does. So it's not clear who will, who will who's coming up the ranks to replace him, but it will be an issue over the next year or two, I imagine, or, or, or in the coming years. He may be, you know, the Warren Buffett and last until he's 96 or longer. Back to the numbers. Stock Doctor has the financial health as satisfactory, but I've noticed there's no trend for financial health in Stock Doctor for this company. Not sure why. I don't know if it being a stock broker causes of the problem or with this just a data glitch with, with Stock Doctor, but no financial trend to score it on. Likewise, we don't have any consensus targets for this company. I'm wondering whether that's because it's a it's a stockbroker and the other stockbrokers don't want to <laughs> give it any airtime. But anyway, that suits us because uh, we can get in before other people. The prop cap though for this company is 1.83 times. So it's it's very, very cheap in terms of the cash it's throwing off. It's just below its net equity per share plus 30%, which comes out to 92 cents. So we can't score it on that. And uh, because of the high yield and, and low PE, which is 8.8 for this company, and the yield's currently 8.9, this is one of the companies which scores on that unusual metric where the yield is higher than the PE, which I found to be a like a, a quick test of, of a deep value investment. And um, if people want to just check that out and they go down the checklist uh, in detail and have a look at that column, you'll see that some of the companies, a lot of the companies on our buy list actually score on that metric where the yield is higher than the PE. As I said, the chair the chair holds 40% of the company and he's an executive chair, so he's also the MD. It's currently trading at the lowest PE of the last three years, so that scores for us. It's, as I said before, the, the price is down dramatically over the last 12 months, but it has just started to turn up again. So we have a, a new three-point uh, trend line uh, buy signal and a recent upturn for that. We don't score it for consistently increasing equity. As you can imagine, it's been, uh, it's, the equity has been coming dropping back as the market's declined. Overall, that sums up to a quality score of 11 out of 11 of 100% and a QAV score of 0.55 that was when I did the analysis at 95 cents. It's actually 0.51 based on a dollar one price today. So it scores really highly for us, but there are risks. And that's often the case when a company is looking good as a value buy. And the risks are that in February of this year, Austrack appointed external auditors, which is PricewaterhouseCoopers in this case, to investigate BFG's compliance with uh, anti-money laundering laws. And there's been radio silence since then. We haven't found out what the results of that is. But as we've seen with the casino industry, uh, if it comes back with a bad report, that could be devastating for the company. 
But uh, like I said, we haven't, we're operating in a void, so we haven't heard anything about that yet. But it's certainly a risk. And the other thing is the, well, I'll call the weight of money argument, which is when the share market is down, stockbroking gets lighter. So 17% decline in the revenue for this company in its latest results compared to last year, and 44% decline in profit. And by weight of money, I mean that when the share market's down, there are less IPOs, uh, there can be less M&A, they, people can sell things and sit on cash. So all those things are happening. There's just less money sloshing around in the share market. And it's it's an interesting part of the share market that if nobody sells anything, so everyone's decided to, to buy and hold through this downturn, the share market can still go backwards because no one's buying anything. So you do need that sort of, one of the, head, the headwinds for the Australian share market has been the fact that everyone's putting 10% of their salary into super funds who have to invest somewhere. But they'll be investing less and less in the share market at the moment because it's dropping and potentially bonds as well for the same reason. But um, eventually they'll come back. And so it's not a bad time to buy a stockbroking company. It's cheap and the market will turn eventually and that money will come back in and find a home in the share market. But do your own research, not without risk this one. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have in, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc, etc. Sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you uh, like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to do you know, learn how to do QAV for yourself. Think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. Um, it's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But, uh, you know, while he's not, <laughs> we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. That's it. Um, if you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episodes. And if you have any questions, uh, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129271. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Mm-hmm.